Job 36 is where we turn this morning. Job 36 is the beginning of the last four speeches that Elihu has delivered to the friends, of course, and to Job, as we began back in chapter 32 and and looked at his opening speech and, and so forth. He now is addressing the further addressing the justice of God and how God is always acting in justice, always acting according to his wisdom, always acting according to his power, and what is the proper response that Job and all of us should have to that is what he will address here in this beginning of his fourth speech. Now we'll look just at, uh, actually, a good portion of chapter 36. We'll save the end of it and then into chapter 37 for next time. He speaks directly to Job in this section, and he is really trying to exalt God. He is proclaiming truth about God's character, his work in the world, and he wants Job to respond with worship, to exalt God and not to challenge him and and, uh, use false accusations against God in order to prove him right, prove Job right, that is, and to recognize that God is caring. He is attentive to Job, not in a in a negative way or a defeating way. As Job had said, would God just turn his gaze away from me so I could just have a little bit of respite? No, Elihu says, no, God is very attentive. He protectively and proactively watches his people and helps them to grow in righteousness, in faith, in humility, in dependence upon him. God is a great teacher, and he is awesome in power, and because he is awesome in power and wisdom and all this insight, he's able to bring justice to fruition. And yet, ultimately, this whole argument isn't so much about justice, it's about the view of God, regardless of justice. Now, we know God is just, he's holy, he's righteous, he is good, and yet that's not really the issue. Job is arguing against God's justice, but God is just. It's not a question. Job is questioning uh, God's goodness, God's attentiveness to him, God's upholding his end of the bargain, as that were, with the retribution principle that prosperity follows piety, and Job has been a pious fellow all his life. And, but that's beside the point. It's, are you worshiping God? Are you honoring God? Are you drawing near to him and giving him that glory, that exaltation, that not blind faith, but definitely a devoted faith, a adherence to God's word and a delight to obey his word and to glorify him in his life. And so Elihu is seeking to motivate Job away from the justice idea, although he, he really emphasizes that God is just, but to orient him toward the worship, which you know Job began that way back in chapters 1 and 2. He did say God has given, Yahweh has given, especially use that personal name of God. Yahweh has given, Yahweh has taken away, blessed be the name of Yahweh. He did have that worship full response to begin with. And then, of course, later in chapter 2, the, after his body itself was was stricken with, with a horrible uh, disease and, and pain and discomfort that he recognized, celebrated, that we should accept the good things from God, yes, but also the adverse times, the adversity that Job recognized. So he started well, but he just, um, in the course of his suffering, uh, would do just like all of us would do. He would start looking more at himself and woe is me and uh, where is God and why isn't God acting? And, and so Elihu is saying, look, you need to just be patient. And we often think, oh, the patience of Job. Well, he did have patience for a little while, but then he just started saying things that he should not have been speaking against God. 
Elihu is helping to reprove Job before God himself comes on the scene. Yahweh comes and speaks directly with Job and challenges Job and does not respond to or give an answer, I should say, to Job's accusations or or charges or, or challenges or demands of God. God is here not to explain himself, but to humble Job, as we all need to be humbled. God himself is God. We are not God. There's one God. We're not him. So we want to honor him. Elihu begins here in chapter 36. Uh, it says here, Elihu continued and said, so this is the beginning of the fourth and final speech that he presents. And then he's, he uh, exits uh, stage right or stage left or however however he goes. He's not mentioned anymore after chapter 37 and or any time before chapter 32 for that matter. In any event, Elihu says, wait for me a little. And I will show you that there is yet more to be said in God's behalf. I will take up my knowledge from afar, and I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not a lie. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Here is, or here are his closing words, as his opening statement to his closing words. And he says, look, you've been so kind to wait patiently. I waited for you, Job, and all the friends. I, I waited for you to speak. Now it's my turn. Wait for me just a little, little longer. He presents an earnest entreaty here at the beginning of, of verse 2. Wait for me just a little bit. Here I am speaking on behalf of God. I am speaking not out of my own age. He didn't have much age, remember? He was he considered himself a young, uh, young fellow. And in relation to Job and the others who he regarded or identified as older and uh, supposedly wise based on their age. But he says, no, I've got something to say as well. So he says, wait for me just a little. Here an earnest entreaty in the beginning of verse 2. But then a God-honoring pursuit. It says, I'll show you that there is yet more to be said in God's behalf. What's he all about? It's not just making himself look good. It's not just trying to justify himself in, in contradiction to Job's statements or to make himself look better in, in the, against the friends or, or make a name for himself. No, I'm talking on God's behalf. This is what motivates me. I am here speaking uh, in God's behalf or for the sake of God. My words come, and he'll make that claim in just a moment, my words come not from myself and it's not to glorify myself, it's to glorify God. It's very similar. What, what Elihu is doing here in relation to what John the Baptist did for the Lord Jesus, even though, coming back into Job, 30, chapters 38 to 41, our God himself speaking, Elihu is the going before before God to prepare the way for him, just as John the Baptist did. The words that John the Baptist spoke are the words that he received from the Lord, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and that was a preparation for God. So the point is here that Elihu, again, uh, is claiming his words, his, his burden is from the Lord, and this is uh, a preparation for what God is doing in Job's life specifically, and for us as we have benefit some many thousands of years later. So his earnest entreaty, his God-honoring pursuit, now in verse 3, he has a heavenly authority. Heavenly authority, he says, I will take up my knowledge from afar. He says, look, the source of my knowledge, the authority of my knowledge, because source and authority really are a connected idea, it's from afar. And we think, oh, neat. 
So you've traveled all over the world and you've got you know, the best of all the wise people, knowledgeable people around the world, and now you're presenting that to us. No, that's not what he's saying at all. My knowledge is not from you know, Orient lands or from the, you know, any place like that. My knowledge comes from like really far away. That is where God himself dwells. And so if my source of wisdom is God himself, then my words are valid and powerful and authoritative. It's not based on me. It's not based on my age or uh, genealogy or anything like that. It's based on the source of where my words are coming from. He says, and he claims about this, I'll take up my knowledge from afar. God himself is described as one who is from afar or approaches us from afar. We see kind of combination idea of that. One of the famous verses we know, of course, Psalm 139, verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. Same concept, same idea. God is afar off. And yet Jeremiah 23, verses uh, 23 and 24 bring those ideas together where God is both very near to us and afar off. So uh, Jeremiah 23, 23 says, Am I a God who is near, declares Yahweh? Well, yes, he is near. Is he not a God far off? Well, yes, he is far off as well. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares Yahweh. That indicates his nearness, that God is it's right at hand. There's no place we can hide to, to get away from him. And yet, do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares Yahweh. So he is a God who is both near and one who is far off. Job, excuse me, Elihu is saying, my knowledge comes from far off. Interesting enough, in verse 25, he has that same phrase, from afar, in relation to men. All men have beheld it. What have they beheld? God's power on display. All men have beheld it. Man looks from afar. It seems like uh, there is a little bookend or inclusio here from verse uh, uh, 3 to verse 25 and indicating, look, we are, or Elihu rather, is representing God who is afar off and yet man looking upon it is also afar off and really can't understand or discern, can definitely see and perceive, but then even that is, is limited in our perspective when we look with blind eyes upon God's wonderful work in creation. Uh, we fail to give honor to him and give praise to him. Somehow we manage to worship and serve the creature for some reason, foolish, wicked, rebellious, treacherous reason, and yet we should be honoring God. And that's what Elihu's all about. I've come to honor God. My knowledge is from God, and I'm speaking things about God that he has told me himself. And I'm speaking things about you, Job, that, that I know from God's point of view. And so he says uh, at the end of verse 3, I have a righteous reason why, why Elihu is speaking. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. He's going to speak what is true. I will give, in fact, this idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give as a gift uh, because he deserves it. It's kind of contrary to say it's a gift which is deserved. But he is going to give righteousness or extol or celebrate or, or declare righteousness. God deserves in his own nature to be given or to be acknowledged as one who is righteous, who is just, who is always does what is right and what is appropriate, how in his time, in his way, he's going to bring everything to, to right. He emphasizes again the fact that God is his maker, that God has authority and, and power just because he's, he's the only one. He's the maker. In other words, there's God and there's everything else. 
my maker is the one who has made me. And so he wants to make sure that, that, uh, El, that Job rather, recognizes, hey, I'm going to tell what is right about who made you, who made me. He is the one that we celebrate here. I'm extolling him. And in verse 4, he says, these are trustworthy words. Trustworthy words. For truly, my words are not a lie. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Oh, wait a minute. That's kind of a pompous statement, isn't it? One who's perfect in knowledge is with you. Well, yes, we'll get to that in a moment. But he says, truly, my words are not a lie. Remember how Job has... Uh, many times reckon, reckoned or regarded the words of the of the friends as lies, uh, untruths, and uh, false wisdom, and so forth. For example, chapter 13, verse 4, you, the friends, cover me with lies. You're all worthless physicians. And so Elihu is saying, okay, maybe they're speaking lies, but I'm not. My words are not a lie. My words are not deceptive or um, misleading you in any way. No, they are uh, perfect, one who is perfect in knowledge, one who is uh, complete in knowledge, or has no impurity or no imperfection in his knowledge. Well, wait a minute, is that Elihu then? See, same, he, he knows everything, he knows all the stuff, and he's got all the, all the wisdom. No, I think he, as a prophet, is representing God, right? Whenever a prophet were to speak, one of the prevailing statements, especially in the King James, we know it, thus saith the Lord. This is what Yahweh says. It's what they say. So the prophet is representing God. God is the one who is perfect in knowledge. God is the one who is there even with Job. And Job has said, where is God? Where is God? Where is God? Uh, why is God not speaking to me? And Elihu says, he has been speaking to you. Job, you're just not listening to him. And here I am, and I'm appealing to you, and I'm exhorting you and comforting you and challenging you because what your words are, are saying are not true. What I'm saying is true. It's from God's perspective. How many times in our contemporary world, and really contemporary from, from Adam to the present age, when we say, you know, thus saith the Lord, and people say, well, who are you to say something like that? You know, we, people think that, oh, you're, you're saying that because you, you think you're better than we are, you're, or you're uh, somehow more whatever, you've got all the stuff. And we say, no, I don't, there's nothing special about me, but I am quoting the scripture, what God has spoken, and God knows, God knows about these things. And so we can rest in the knowledge of God, rest in the word of God. Isn't that the initial challenge from Satan? Did God really say, back in Genesis 3, did God really say? And no, God is misleading you, is what uh, Satan challenged Eve with there at the, at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No, God, God knows, and God is, is lying to you. And no, 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 no. God always speaks what is true, always what is appropriate, and one with perfect or complete knowledge. And this even is a, a plural idea. This perf one who's perfect is a, a plural of completeness or fullness. It's not just a little bit. God knows a little bit about things. No, he knows everything about everything that needs to be known. God knows these things. Well, so he has in introduced this last speech with, a, with the, the statement that, look, I'm speaking what's true. I'm speaking on your behalf, uh, on behalf of God, I should say. And you can listen to me and, and trust what I'm saying. Beginning at verse 5 through 25 is the bulk of the text we'll look at for today, is that the main idea is that God judges people justly. God judges people justly. And you think, well, what about this and what about that? And when, when did God not do that? No, let's back up. God judges people justly. Beginning at verse 5, 5 through 7, God is mighty in justice. The scripture says, behold, God is mighty, but does not reject. He is mighty in the power of his heart. 
He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives justice to the afflicted. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. We see that uh, really the the power, the, the clear thinking of Elihu's argument is that because God is so powerful, therefore his justice is right. God is able to do these things, and God does these things for his own glory, for his own uh, worship uh, from the people who would recognize in humble submission to what God is doing. And so he says in verse 5, God is mighty. Actually, before that, it says, behold God. This idea of behold is an emphatic, uh, hey, get your attention, put your attention on God. And Job would say, well, I've been thinking about God. No, you've been thinking about yourself, Job. You, you're, you're talking all about what you demand and what you've done and what's, what you deserve. and all. No, put your emphasis, put your attention on God. Behold, God is this idea. We see the same phrase at the beginning of verse 22. Behold, God is exalted. And again in verse 26, behold, God is exalted and we do not know him. So he's emphasizing you know, a reorientation of uh, attention and affection even. Hey, celebrate what God is doing. Same idea comes in chapter 37, verse 23, where he says, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He's exalted in power and he will not afflict justice and abundant righteousness. So God is the one that we ought to set our affection upon. Elihu is, is directing Job's attention in the right way. It says God is mighty. Our God is mighty. He is the strong one. He is the one who is, uh, um, again, so powerful, so immense in his strength, the strength of his might, the compound idea of, of uh, we'll see here in just a little bit, the uh, heart of strength or strength of heart that he mentions here in, in uh, later in this verse. And he is the one who is mighty, mighty, mighty. Uh, he emphasizes the might of God. Back in chapter 34, verse 17, he, Elihu asks, shall one who hates justice rule? So if, if God were the one to hate justice, is he the right person to be in, in leadership or in rulership? No, no. Shall one who hates justice rule? Well, no. But God doesn't hate justice, and he is the rightful ruler. And will you condemn the righteous, mighty one? Elihu is saying, no, you, you, you're out of line, Job. You're talking things about God who loves justice. Justice is at the, at the root of his throne or his, his uh, kingliness, and you're challenging that, and you condemn him because you haven't, or you feel, rather, that you don't, haven't received that justice that deserves you. God is the mighty one. And notice it says he does not reject God and his strength and his authority. I mean, he could, he could look down on everything and condemn it and reject it because it's not him. It's less than him. Everything outside of him, God, Father, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is creation. Angels, demons, uh, the, the galaxies, everything is beneath him, but he does not reject. He does not refuse them. He has entered into relationship with people. He has entered into not just a, a condemning, a despotic kind of relationship, but a saving, compassionate, earnestly desiring fellowship, not for, for his sake, for our sake, that we could have that relationship with the creator, the maker. He says he will not reject. Uh, he does not reject. Well, many times we can see how God does not reject. Even when the scripture, again, this is coming after the time of Job, I believe, uh, when the laws are given through Moses and given to the nation of Israel, 
when the judgment of God does fall upon the disobedient people, Israel and Judah, and, and all what's going to happen. Even in Leviticus, it's, it's anticipated that great disobedience will occur. Leviticus 26, verse 44, in spite of this, when God has brought judgment and the ultimate judgment, casting them out of the land of promise, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so loathe them as to bring an end to them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am Yahweh their God. God is faithful to his promises. He does not reject, and he will not reject, so as to loathe them or to, to hate them or to set his anger upon them forever. What an amazing thing that we can escape the wrath of God, right, being justly accused, standing condemned before him, and then not just forgiven of that sin and then placed somewhere in heaven, somewhere in the new heavens and new earth, somewhere, you know, and not even close to God. But no, we are adopted as children, brought right into his household so that we can call him Abba, that we can call him our father, that we can draw near to him and be considered part of his own family. I mean, it, it would have been wonderful if we just, you know, escaped hell and, and got somewhere into heaven, the, the outer, outer uh, hinder parts of heaven. But he brings us right near. God does not reject those who come before him. Uh, Bildad had claimed something like this as well. Job 8 and verse 20, he says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor will he strengthen the hand of evildoers, of the evildoers. God will not reject a blameless man. And that's, that's true. You know, again, when the friends speak, a lot of things they say aren't right, but a lot of things they say are true as well. And so you have to really wade carefully through their arguments and their statements. But God is the one who's faithful. He does not reject. You remember in James, when James is speaking about wisdom, he says, look, in James 1 and verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, because God gives to all generously and without reproach be given to him. Wisdom will be given. God gives generously. He doesn't find fault. He doesn't reproach us and say, well, you should have known better. I mean, how, haven't I told you that about 1,500 times already? And you, No, God is so generous to, for wisdom, to the power of knowing what God wants me to do and then doing it. God is generous. He does not reject. He is mighty in the power of his heart. He, this Ella who's celebrating the fact that God is strong. He is strong of heart. In other words, he not only can do things, but he does his own things. It's not that he's fulfilling somebody else's purposes or plans. Or, no, it's his own purpose. He is mighty in the power of his heart, which really is a comfort to us again, because, okay, if somebody had all power but is evil about things, I mean, that's not a good thing. We've seen that many times in human history where evil people get in power and they fulfill all kind of wickedness. No, God is good and his purpose will be accomplished by God himself. He is mighty in the power of his heart. So verse uh, 6 uh, celebrates the fact that God does provide justice. He provides justice for the wicked. It says here at the beginning of verse 6, he does not keep the wicked alive. You think, whoa, he does not keep the wicked alive. Remember how Elihu said earlier, if God were to just withhold breath, then everything would die. Everything would die. And so God is the one who keeps wicked and righteous both alive until it's the time when he does not keep them alive. He does not preserve their lives. He executes them or slays them to end their wrongdoing. And he will bring a sudden and, and a certain end to them, as we saw back in uh, chapter 34, uh, the certainty of God's judgment. 
This is a contradiction or a challenge to Job's claim back in chapter 21, verse 7, for example. Why do the wicked still live, continue on, also become very powerful? Well, they do sometimes in this life, but ultimately, no, God will, uh, does not keep the wicked alive. He will bring judgment in his time. We see that God is using his power in a gracious way to save his people, but also in a gracious way even to allow the wicked people opportunity to repent. We should regard the patience of God as opportunity for repentance. It's God's kindness and an opportunity for for salvation in that regard. But when that line is crossed, when that time of judgment is is due, God will execute it. God will kill them. God will uh, not just in this world, there's, there's death, you know, temporally, physically, but there is that spiritual death, that separation from God, that God does keep the, or excuse me, does not keep the wicked alive, ultimately, if they refuse to repent. Do you remember in the life of Saul, the uh, king, first king of Israel, that he was God's chosen one to be the king? Nobody elected him. It was God's own choice, right down to the the specific man himself. And yet, on several occasions, Saul fell very short of what God required of the king of the people, and disobeyed God, and disobeyed God, and disobeyed God again, and thought, you know, he was justified in doing it. And ultimately, God said, no, you have crossed the line. I've not only taken the kingdom from you, I've taken the kingdom from your descendants. There will be no uh, Saul dynasty, as it were. And I've given the kingdom to a man, your neighbor, who's better than you, a man whom I have chosen. And and we see that, of course, in in the King David who will be established. But there was a line that Saul crossed. He didn't know where it was. God was kind. He was patient to him. He brought the, the prophet Samuel to him to rebuke him, to lead him, to guide him. And even when God did declare that Saul was not to be in king and even was to be executed, Saul wept and he was very sorry for that because there was a relationship there and Saul chose poorly. God does not keep the wicked alive. And we see at the end of 1 Samuel that Saul died and Jonathan, his son, and others of his sons, in fact, all of, all of his direct descendants were killed except Mephibosheth that we'll consider here in a little bit as well in, in the course of this study. And God is the one whose power is... It will be accomplished, will be executed, will be demonstrated in justice, bringing justice for the wicked. But he also, end of verse 6, provides justice for the righteous. And we think, well, justice for the righteous, yes, vindication, uh, deliverance. He gives justice to the afflicted. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. So he is the one who uses his power to deliver his own people. His eyes, he does not withdraw his eyes, which another way of saying he maintains or keeps his eyes on those who are described here as the righteous. We see, for example, in uh, Psalm 33, verse 18, same kind of idea. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him and on those uh, who wait for his loving kindness. What does he do with this eye? Well, he uh, sets his eye upon them to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Wow, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. Well, I guess it kind of behooves us then to fear him and wait for his loving kindness, to rest in him and say, God will bring uh, judgment to pass, justice to pass in his time. He will deliver my soul from death. Maybe not from death in in the sense that uh, 
we're going to die sometime. Is it going to be a death of, of uh, judgment, human judgment, perhaps, you know, to die at the hand of evil people? Our Lord Jesus did that, dying at the hands of evil, wicked men. And yet he delivered from death because death could not hold those who cannot hold those who are in Christ, those who are trusting in him, fearing him, awaiting for his loving kindness. There is a deliverance from death. And even in the course of a famine, you know, strife and, and struggles, whether from war or uh, uh, disease or weather occurrences, which God is powerful and active and authoritative and all these things, God keeps them alive in famine. Think of so many examples in the prophets as they would bring uh, food to widows and the widow and her son and, and uh, you know, just a little bit of food for them. And, and well, that food lasted the whole famine. God provided in the course of that time for her and for her family. God is able to do it. The eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him. Uh, next Psalm, Psalm 34, verse 15, says the eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. So again, God does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. He is very attentive, uh, so attentive to their cries for help. He says, Elihu says, God has established with kings on the throne. He has seated these, these righteous people forever and they are exalted. God is the one who puts things to right. He is the one who uh, undermines the underminers, those who are the usurpers. He is able to remove authority from them, and he is the one who can establish the the justice for his own people. He has established with kings on the throne his own people. Think of Joseph, son of Jacob again, who was a prophet in a manner of speaking, received dreams and visions from the Lord and, and spoke and was able to interpret dreams of, of Pharaoh, that he was afflicted in so many different ways and uh, did did have had no justice, I should say. Uh, he, he was in prison for all those many years and neglected and forsaken and, and all this. And yet God, what did he do? Seated him with kings on the throne. He was number two in the whole land of Egypt under Pharaoh. And we recognize, well, God did that. And Joseph was exalted. And you know, Genesis 50, 20, I think is the verse, where he says, I know you guys, you brothers of mine, you meant this for evil. You were jealous. You were angry at me, and rightly so, because he, uh, Joseph was a little bit proud and arrogant about that. And yet, God meant this for good. God worked through your evil and through my evil, I suppose Joseph could say, to accomplish good for the saving of many people alive. God was so kind, again, to deliver those who were in uh, famine, as it said back in uh, Psalm 33, verse 19, to deliver or to keep them alive in famine. Uh, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 14 says, he has come out of prison, uh, this person, he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. God is the one who is able to establish whomever he wants in positions of authority. Think of Mordecai and Haman. Haman had the aspirations to be great in the kingdom, and God humbled him to the point of death uh, and the death of a wicked person. Whereas Mordecai, who was just a, a scribe, a, a Jewish scribe in a Persian kingdom, was elevated and was right under the authority of the king himself. And so God is able to do that by his own pleasure. He does it. Sometimes he doesn't do it. We see many examples. Uh, Isaiah, for example, was not in any honorific position of authority. He was killed. He was hunted down and killed. And many other of the prophets and apostles were done that way, or killed that way. And yet, even so, God is faithful. He doesn't do the same thing for everybody. He is the one who is just and good, and he knows everything from the end, from the beginning. So he acts according to his own glory, ultimately for our good. And so we can rest in that.
Again, Elihu's point here in these verses 5 through 7, God is mighty in justice, in space justice. God brings justice to the wicked and to the righteous. Beginning in verse 8, verse eight rather, he uh, says, God justly instructs his people. In the course of life, God justly instructs his people. Um, first couple of verses here, verse, starting at verse 8. If they are bound in fetters, these are the righteous people he's talking about. If the righteous are bound in fetters and are caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they have magnified themselves. He opens their ear to discipline and says that they return from wickedness. So we see this. This uh, these righteous people are bound in fetters. They're caught in the cords of affliction. Could be that they're prisoners of war. This idea of uh, being bound in fetters, you know, chains of uh, on on uh, feet and hands, and, and maybe even between prisoners, where there's you know a, a chain gang, you know, walking together and and doing things that they must go the the way that their captors are leading them. It says they are caught in the cords of affliction. That the, these these chains, these uh, um, hurtful uh, devices, are meant to afflict them, cause them great discomfort. And yet, in the course of that discomfort, that affliction, God is teaching them. Verse nine says He declares to them their work. Wait a minute. I thought we we're the righteous ones here. What do you mean, declaring to us our work, showing us our transgressions? Well, how have we transgressed? That you've magnified yourself, perhaps, in the course of affliction. Uh, it, both in this specific context, but it's just in general with, with life. When we are pressed in, when we are afflicted, when things don't go our way, when we are discomforted uh, in, our, in our lifestyle, then we recognize, whoa, God is, is kind to teach me, to teach me his ways, to help me. Uh, even it says here to open, uh, verse 10, he opens their ear to discipline, says that they return from wickedness. God is the one active in our affliction. He uses cords of affliction to teach us, to declare to us our own work, our own transgressions, how we have magnified ourselves, how we have become proud and arrogant. Oh, that really is a hurtful statement to Job because he is the one who is receiving this discipline of the Lord, this instruction, these cords of affliction to show him not so much that he is a sinner and therefore he is suffering, but to show in the course of his suffering, whoa, it really uncovered this idea of magnification, self-magnification. Elohim is there to magnify God, right? To ascribe righteousness to my maker. Job is the one who's saying, wait a minute, what about me? I'm the righteous guy here. I'm getting picked on. God's picking on me. Why is he picking on me? Why am I having such a hard time? And so in the course of this, Elohim says, God is helping you. God is teaching you. He's warning you, Job, that you are a man of transgressions. You have arrogance and pride in your heart, and God is working to remove that from you. He's, he's showing that to you so that your pride would be exposed and then, of course, uh, refused in your life. God is so active. He is justly instructing his people in the cords of, again, good times. Good times are helpful to identify, you know, are we grateful for these things? Do we think we deserve it? Do we think that somehow uh, God owes it to us? We can learn some things in the good times, but especially in the hard times, we can recognize, whoa, God is teaching me things about myself that I would never have known except for these afflictions, except for these horrible situations. We recognize that God is teaching us even in the course of these very difficult times. And it, again, it said, uh, the picture is, you know, if you bump a, a jar of water, that you know, a jar that's full with water, what comes out? Well, water. Why? 
because it's full of water. When you bump something, you find out, oh, what's inside there? Could be milk, could be wine, could be whatever it is. But when you bump it, when there's affliction applied to it, then it usually spills out what is inside. Isn't that so with our words? When we get bumped or uh, challenged or we get into uh, somebody offends us, what comes out of our mouths? Is it blessing and sweetness? Is it is it uh, uh, cheerfulness? Is it gratitude to God? Is it words of, of uh, comfort to other people? Words of, of rebuke, rebuke and, and correction when necessary. But what kind of words? Or are they hateful, uh, spiteful, angry, violent, uh, destructive words? Well, we want to be sure and to discipline ourselves through affliction to recognize, whoa, I'm a mess. I need a Savior every day. I want to listen to what God is declaring to me so that I would turn away from magnifying myself. How foolish is that? Well, why don't you magnify God? He deserves it. You don't deserve it. He says in verse 10, God opens the ear, their ear, to discipline and says that they return from wickedness. There is this idea of an open ear. We see this in uh, different places in the in the Proverbs, especially about the ear and an open ear, and it's described variously. It has to do with a, a an obedient listening and a submission to what God is speaking to us. So listening, but listening, not just, you know, I pick up your sound waves and I transmit them or transfer them into a mental image or mental words. No, I mean, listening, yes, but listening so as to obey what God is saying, submitting ourselves unto God's instruction. So it's obedient listening to what God has instructed us to do. He opens their ear to discipline. This idea is, is presented, for example, in Isaiah 40, or excuse me, Isaiah 50, verses 4 and 5, uh, speaking about the uh, about Lord Yahweh, Lord God has given me, given me, the Lord, it's the servant, this servant idea. This is the Messiah, Christ himself, who is saying, Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary with one weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear, or opens my ear, to listen as a disciple. Lord Yahweh has opened my ear, and I did not rebel, nor did I turn back. What is the, the goal? You listen so that you would not rebel or turn back, but to obey and to delight in obeying God. God opens the ear to discipline. The discipline of God, which is, I mean, again, Hebrews uh, 12 uh, speaks about that, that we should regard God's discipline as a good thing in our lives, to teach us uh, what is righteous, what is good, and to establish that in our own lives. God is the one, in the course of affliction, in the course of hard times, opening our ears to submit, to obey what God has spoken to us. Eliphaz had said this earlier, back in chapter 5. Eliphaz, one of the friends, he says, Behold, how blessed is the man whom God reproves. So do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. Again, a right statement. Don't reject what God is doing in your life, even the difficult times that you are experiencing now, Job. Even he started his speech, Eliphaz did his first speech in chapter 4, verse 3. He says, Job, you have disciplined many and you have strengthened limp, ha limp hands. You're the one who taught those who were in uh, affliction. Similarly, you've strengthened those. Well, it's come to you and, and are you not able to receive it? And so again, Eliphaz was saying some true, helpful things there. He got off by assuming that Job was a sinner and that's why he was suffering. But he was speaking some things about, hey, we can learn more about God. We can learn more about ourselves and recognize, whoa, God is, is able to bring us uh, to more perfect knowledge, more perfect wisdom in this life. One man said it this way, the wise man rides the wave, the fool is drowned by it. 
The wise man rides the wave, the fool is drowned by it. The wave of discipline, the wave of correction, the wave of suffering even, God is able to sustain us through it and teach us things that we could never have learned before. He is so kind. He's a great master teacher. Now, he gives, uh, Elhu continues, and he gives a portrait, uh, two portraits. First portrait is, hey, what happens to those who do listen, who do have the open ears to listen to God's discipline? Well, he presents that portrait in verse 11. Then he also presents the portrait of the one who does not listen, does not heed God's word. Verse 11, first of all, he says, if they hear and serve him, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. If they hear and serve him. This is the positive portrait of those who humbly listen and repent, turn from their sin. It is this idea of of delighting in God, of, of running into God's refuge and rest. It is uh, a picture not so much of what can I get out of this, uh, in terms of material prosperity, you know, again, that's what the friends were after. Hey, if you just repent, you'll get all this stuff back. Well, that's not what, what uh, Elihu is saying here. It is to have that fellowship with God when you hear and serve him, and that itself is your delight. Then all the other stuff God will add to you. But your delight is not that. It's not the stuff that God gives you. It's himself. Do you remember, again, I mentioned we talked about Mephibosheth, one of the uh, grandson of Saul, son of Jonathan, good bud, buddy of David, and after the death of Saul and Jonathan and so forth, David was looking for somebody in Saul's household to show kindness to. And there was this, this man, Mephibosheth, who was lame in both feet, and go on and off about that. But remember when David was challenged in his kingship by his son Absalom and fled for a while and all that drama, when he came back, when David was restored to Jerusalem, and again, there's some Drama, of course, there's always drama with people. Just that's how it goes. But the drama between Mephibosheth and his master steward, Ziba, uh, that, uh, you know, who was right in that situation, hard to know. But Mephibosheth was so delighted, not just that David um, was going to restore the good stuff that Mephibosheth kind of got used to as being a, a recipient of David's largesse in the kingdom. No, he was so grateful that David had been restored in peace to his own house, as 2 Samuel 19 and verse 30. Forget the material uh, prosperity that David would bring with him, just that David himself had come in peace to his own house. That's the delight that Mephibosheth had. That's the delight that the righteous person has, to see God recognized or to, and to celebrate him. Forget about the stuff that he may or may not give to us. You know, God gives, God takes away. Forget about that. We should give thanks to God for whatever we have or don't have, but it's, it's God himself that we need. And that's been Job's desire all along. It wasn't the stuff. It was the relationship. Where is God? I thought you know, we had this intimacy. We had this relationship. And now I'm just, you know, left, abandoned. I don't know what happened. What I didn't do anything wrong, did I? I don't know anything in my life that would warrant this kind of uh, uh, incident. And so Job is really worked up about it. And Elihu says, look, if you hear and serve, humble yourself, receive the discipline God is giving, then you will end your days in prosperity and your years in pleasures. This is, again, contrary to uh, so many statements that Job has made and the friends to some degree. Well, less so the friends. They would, they would say that the uh, prosperity follows piety and if you just return, you get all this stuff back. Job says, no, 
I'm going to die. I'm going to die without any children, die in poverty, die in my sickness. I'm not going to live beyond this. And Elihu says, no, it's going to be fine. God's going to work this out one way or another. Okay, maybe you will die, but no, I'm saying you're going to end your days in prosperity. In good is the, is the rude idea there. In goodness and your years will be fulfilled in pleasures. These two ideas of what is good and what is pleasant are repeated in Scripture many times. Just the good stuff, what is uh, pleasant, what's desirable, and then what is, uh, again, pleasant or delightful. Same ideas, good, good and, and pleasant. For example, Psalm 133 and verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. The goodness is that word prosperity in this verse. And of course, uh, pleasant or pleasures is there as well. And uh, we see it also in Psalm 135 verse 3, Praise Yah, hallelujah, for Yahweh is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely, pleasant, just greatly desirable. And so Job, or excuse me, Elihu says, Hear and, and serve. And again, those two ideas of hearing and serving so tied, so much tied together. One who is listening and then obeying what God has to say. Pictured, for example, in Deuteronomy 11, verse 13. If you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today, Moses says, to love Yahweh your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. And you go on and read the rest of that. But he says you listen obediently and serve him. You worship him in your service. You listen to him. You obey him. You do what he wants you to do. Uh, A little bit later in Deuteronomy 13, verse 4, You shall walk after Yahweh your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. What does it mean to trust and obey? Well, you cling to God and you fear him. What does it mean to fear him? Well, you, you keep his commandments. You listen to him. All these ideas, fearing God, loving God, clinging to God, are so intimately, intricately uh, connected together such that when we do listen to him, we will obey him. We honor him. We see this in scripture many times. Uh, uh, end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 7 Jesus says, this is the one who hears my words and acts upon them or does them. And he gave two pictures there at the end of Matthew 7. And so we see that, wow, God is so powerful to give us this wonderful instruction so that we would get less full of ourselves and more full of him hearing God, not just the you know, audible reception of words and, and sound waves and so forth, but to understand, to love, to delight in what God is saying, and then, of course, to obey him. The contrast, he says, there are those who heed instruction, those, God, those kind of folks are blessed, but there are those who reject instruction, and guess what happens to them? They perish. Beginning at verse 12, if they do not hear, they shall pass away by a weapon, and they will breathe their last without knowledge. But the godless in heart lay up anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life perishes among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted in their affliction and opens their ear in time of oppression. So those who reject instruction, they're going to perish. They will be cut off at some time if they refuse to hear. And so many times we see that in Scripture where they were just refused to listen. We see that in Pharaoh. You know, who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? Well, there's Yahweh. And, and he would not bow his his uh, own reign, his own life to him, and certainly not his kingdom of Egypt. And so God said, okay, I'm going to destroy you and all your kingdom because you refuse to hear. But he's going to do that with his own people. Jeremiah 11, verse 10. Uh, they have turned back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refuse to hear my words. And they have walked after other gods to serve them. We see again those con- the 
connection between listening and serving, they served these idols, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, have broken my covenant, which I cut with their fathers. What's the issue? They refuse to listen. Uh, Jeremiah 13 and verse 10, the evil people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts and have walked after other gods to serve them and to worship them, let them be just like this belt, which is totally worthless. It's the belt that Jeremiah took and, and buried and then went back and found, wait a minute, this brand new belt is now worthless because it's been left out in the elements. It's the same kind of thing. These people should have been useful to God, but now they are useless because they refuse to listen. They've walked in the stubbornness of their hearts. They've got it all figured out. I know what I'm doing. God, you don't need to tell me anything. I know it. Well, God says you don't. And you are going to, I mean, just, you don't know anything because what you're serving is foolish. It is wicked and empty. It can't deliver you from anything. And you're worshiping and orienting your whole life around that. No, it's useless. You are worthless. I'm going to cast you off like this worthless belt. God is the one who brings judgment upon those who reject instruction. It says they shall pass away by a weapon, uh, a sword, some translations have. Some translations even have a whole different analogy or image that they will cross the river of death. In any event, they're dead. They perish because of this, this uh, judgment of God. They'll breathe their last without knowledge. They, they thought they were going to live, I mean, not forever, but they, they thought they were going to live a long time yet. And God says, no, you're going to breathe your last you didn't know it was your last time uh, to breathe, or you could also un understand that they died without a saving knowledge of God. They died, died without uh, an appropriate understanding of who God is and what he's doing in their lives. And so they died foolishly, or with foolishness in their hearts. They breathed their last without knowledge. Verse 13 says, The godless in heart lay up anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. God is the one who, again, is instructing his people. They are... Uh, they refuse to listen. They refuse to receive that instruction. They get angry that they're receiving the just retribution of God. They get angry. They're godless in heart, and they just angry against God. They curse him. They find all kind of reason to, to hate him and, and blaspheme his name. They do not cry for help when he binds them. He's not, you know, they're, they're just proud, and they're, they're hateful toward God, and they refuse to, to listen to him. And so God doesn't deliver them. Remember he said in, in uh, chapter 35 that he does not always deliver those because their prayers are, are wicked or, or um, uh, verse 13, verse 12, they cry out but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to an empty cry nor will the Almighty perceive it. So God has no obligation to deliver people just because they cry out to him. No. In fact, these people don't even bother crying out to him. When he knows, when they know that God is, is binding them, God is bringing that judgment. Now, it says they die without knowledge. That means they don't, they, there's not a knowledge enough to save them. There's a knowledge enough that there's a God. Everybody knows that. But they refuse to acknowledge that they owe their allegiance to God, that they owe their identity to God. They owe their life to God. They refuse to do that. And so God brings them to a time of perishing. Verse 14, they die in youth. They don't live long. Again, that's the accusation that Job had, that the righteous, or excuse me, the wicked, why are they living so long? Why doesn't God bring judgment upon them? They die in youth, Elihu says, and their life perishes among the cult prostitutes. In other words, uh, and a youthful shame because of all the wickedness of these, these wicked people, cult prostitutes, those who are doing all kind of nasty behavior. They're, the wicked people, those who refuse God, will die just in line with them. Kind of reminds you of our Lord Jesus Again, not because he's wicked, but because he died in the place of wicked men, in the 
context or you know, surrounded by wicked men, both those who are accusing him, putting him to death, but the robbers on his right and left, he was, his, his place was assigned with iniquitous, transgressant kind of people, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted as an unrighteous person, not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it, and he died in our place. These people will die in their youth. They'll perish with wicked, evil, nasty, nasty people. Verse 15 says, He delivers the afflicted in their affliction and opens their ear in time of oppression. God is so delighted uh, to use affliction to deliver the afflicted. You think, well, that kind of is a... Why, does he do, why can't he just deliver us from, from affliction so we don't even have affliction to begin with? Well, because he uses the cords of affliction to discipline us, to teach us. God is a master teacher. He brings us to the, t- to the point of humble, open ears. And again, he opens their ears to discipline, verse 10, and says that they, I didn't mention that here in verse 10, says that they should return from wickedness. That's the idea of repentance. Return, turn from wickedness. Forsake your wickedness. Again, Job 1.1, Job was fearing God and turning away from evil. He turned away from wickedness. That's the whole idea that we need to have, not just a once and done kind of thing. I turned away from evil when I was 20 and I've never turned back. Well, wouldn't that be delightful to say? But that's not a real experience in our lives. We constantly need to repent and turn from wickedness. And so verse 15 says, He delivers the afflicted, those who recognize their affliction, recognize that God is working in it, and he opens their ear in time of oppression. God is the one who works things out uh, to, for our best interest, for his good, for his, for, excuse me, for his glory, for our good. His purpose is to show kindness. Several verses in Psalm 119 Uh, Verse 67, for example, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Oh, so affliction. Before I was afflicted, I was uh, just a, a lost sheep, a straying sheep, but now I keep your word. Verse 71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Whoa. The psalmist can say, it was good. I, I learned from that affliction. And again in verse 75, I know, O Yahweh, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Whoa, to recognize that, wouldn't that be wonderful to hear that from Job? Well, thankfully, we will. Chapter 42, he does say these things and, and recognize, whoa, God is just. He's righteous in his judgments. And in his faithfulness, you have afflicted me. God is good. He's going to rest in that knowledge. And so we see that God is acting through suffering. God is acting through affliction to discipline his righteous people, to keep them humble under his mighty power. And we see how he is uh, in authority over all these things. Well, the response that Job ought to have, beginning at verse 16, we'll look really briefly at this. It's a big idea, though, uh, that, hey, Job, you better beware. You should exalt God's work and not find so much fault with it. Exalt God's worth work. Verse 16 uh, says, Then indeed... He enticed you from the mouth of distress. Instead of it, a broad place with no constraint and the comfort of your table full of fatness. But you were full of judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. Beware, lest wrath entice you to scoffing. Do not let the greatness of the atonement turn you aside. Will your cries keep you from distress or all the forces of your power? Do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. Be careful. Do not turn to wickedness, for you have chosen this to affliction." I'll stop there for just a quick moment here. Job is called upon to surrender his life to God, to rest in God's deliverance, in God's time. God will, and he does desire to deliver you from affliction. Verse 16 says, Then indeed, again, 
picking up the idea of if you listen and you heed or, or obey God's word, if you listen and serve him, then indeed he enticed you from the mouth of, the, of distress. A lot of times we think of entice in a negative way. In fact, we can understand this word in a negative fashion that it means to um, mislead or deceive somebody or to entice to evil. But here it has a as a rather positive sense to deli- to deliver uh, to uh, kind of like a lure to get you out of of uh, danger. A lot of people think of a lure, a, a lure, as one that is you know like a, on a fish hook or something. That uh, hey, come over here, little fishy, and I'll eat you. Whoa, that's that's not good. We don't want to entice. That's not what God is doing. He is enticing Job away from that mouth of distress. What's the mouth of distress? Death and and destruction that way, but also not just that ultimately, but in the course of life, pride and challenging God and finding fault with him. God is saying, turn away from that foolishness. Turn away from destruction. That's the path of destruction. Come back over here. Come to me, Jesus says, all you are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. He he is enticing. He's he's pleading, not pleading in in a... uh, like a, from poverty, from a weak position. No, he is imploring us, exhorting us to turn away from, from wickedness. Come back away from there. That's a dangerous place. How many times you, as a parent have you said that to your kids? Hey, don't go over there. It's, you know, it's hot or you're going to hurt yourself or it's going to cut. No, come over this way. So instead of this mouth of distress, you know, open mouth just gaping with all kind of destruction, instead of that, a broad place with no constraint, just open and and uh, comfortable, a pleasant situation. So he, God has brought from a place of distress, a place of, of uh, great sorrow and, and so forth, into a broad, open area where God is just wanting to pour upon blessings uh, uh, on the heads of those who fear him and want to, to honor him and please him and obey him, of course. And so a broad place with no constraint, no, no more affliction. You've, you've passed the test. You've learned the lesson you need to learn. And now it is comfort, uh, the comfort of your table full of fatness. That God does want to free Job from destruction and bring him to a place of rest, of plenty. Uh, you know, we think of fatness. Oh, that's, um, we're trying to watch our weight. Well, no, this is a time indicating plenty and richness. This is God's provision for those who are, are uh, pleasing to him. And God does bring comfort. God's, God gives the great gifts uh, upon uh, Job's table. And Job could think, well, that's, that's great. I'm, I'm going to have a nice meal. But what about my family? My children are gone and dead. Well, God's going to answer that too. And what about all my people, the people I used to love to share a meal with? What about that? God's going to restore that as well. I don't even have any food to share with people. All my flocks are gone. All my servants are killed, or most of them. And, and God says, I'll take care of that too. You just trust me. You just humble yourself unto me. Come away from that dangerous place. Come away from your scoffing, your arrogance, and all. Come back to me, and I will bless you. But, verse 17, Job, you were full of judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. Job, you are so consumed with this idea that uh, of, of your own rights and what you deserve in your life, your righteousness. You're just all consumed with that. That's the wrong thing to be consumed with. You are full of judgment on the wicked or the judgment of the wicked or the, the kind of attitude toward God that the wicked people have. Judgments and, judgment and justice take hold of you. Now, I'm going to grant that beginning at verse 17 through, uh, what is it, verse 20 or so, uh, several of these verses, the text in the Hebrew is really hard to kind of 
unscramble. And so we're, we're trying to do our best here to figure out what in the world is Elihu saying. Uh, something along the lines of, of uh, Job is speaking just as wicked people would, and which is what Job had accused his wife of doing, right? The wickedly foolish women back in chapter 2, while Job is, is doing that as well. So verse 18 says, Job, you better take care not to deride or scoff against God. Beware lest wrath entice you. There's our word entice in a negative sense here, right? We saw it back in verse 16. God enticed you in a positive. He was trying to deliver you. But now wrath is enticing you to scoffing. That's sin, scoffing against God. Do not let the greatness of the atonement turn you aside. Take care, Job, that you do not use this as an opportunity for finding fault with God. This is, again, hard to understand what, what, what is Elihu saying here, especially when we look at the greatness of the atonement. What's this about? It could be that he's, he's saying, Job, you are, are learning or you are focusing on the wrong lesson. Uh, you're, you're, the lesson you're learning is that God is unjust and he's treated you wrong. No, that, that's not where you should go. You should recognize God knows best. He's powerful. He, he is powerful enough to accomplish his own purposes. Nobody needs to tell him what to do. You're the one telling God what to do. You demand your own things. Turn away from that. Be careful, lest wrath, your anger, entice you to scoffing, or the wrath that you perceive you're receiving from God. You know, don't let that, don't allow that to lead you into a, a negative uh, relationship with God. Don't let the greatness of the atonement turn you aside. It uh, could be that that is in relation to the... Um, the the penalty or the payment that that Job has to offer, uh, which essentially is repentance, and you think, oh, but he's got to repent, he's got to confess his sin. You know, humanly speaking, repentance is the most powerful tool that humans have to repent, to turn away from sin, to relent concerning wickedness, to to say, I'm not going to do that. I, I was going that direction, but I'm going to turn. And that changes the course of so many things. I mean, even temporally, uh, rest, restoration of relationship. But ultimately, when we turn away from sin and turn to the Lord, that changes our destiny. Again, I'm speaking humanly, but God does, because God is sovereign over all these things, and even in salvation, he is sovereign, brings us to the position of repentance. But from a human perspective, when we repent, that it seems like it's a pretty expensive proposition to have to confess our sin and to you know, humble ourselves and admit that we're wrong. Well, don't let the greatness of that salvation, that atonement, that covering of your sin, turn you aside. Job, do the right thing, even if it means you have to set aside your own um, integrity, not in a negative sense, you need to become a hypocrite, but to recognize it's not about you, Job, it's about God. You give glory to God. You speak, even against your own self, that you are speaking foolishly. Don't, you know, I know you're the greatest man, you know, greatest of the sons of the East and all that kind of stuff, but forget about that. Honor God, exalt him. Verse 19 seems to say, Job, you can't deliver yourself. Will your cries keep you from distress or all the forces of your power? Do you have it within yourself to deliver you from all this affliction, all this difficult stuff? Will your cries keep you from distress? No. You, you can't deliver yourself uh, based on your pleas for help, especially when they're empty, when they're you know, more finding fault with God than drawing near and, and submitting, surrendering uh, his life to God. No, he is the one who is, who is challenging God or even speaking falsely about God. And so Elihu says, even your cries are not able to deliver you from distress. Job cannot protect or deliver himself regardless of his cries for help 
or his strength, all the forces of his power, it says that, hey, Job, you're not strong enough to save yourself. You can't do it. You better just rely upon God. You can't deliver yourself. Verse 20, again, difficult text to try to understand. Do not long for the night when people vanish in their place. Do you remember, again, back in chapter 3, Job said his opening statement after a week of sitting uh, in silence with his friends, he said, essentially, three things. Why didn't I die? Or, well, why was, why was I ever born? Why didn't I die at birth? And why am I still alive? In other words, he was expecting death or wanting death to be the answer to his thing. And Elihu says, don't seek death as an end to your suffering. Don't long for the night when people vanish in their place. Don't long for that time when, when, uh, when you'll be dead and, and no further problems will you, will you face. No, don't long for death as an end to your suffering. Why don't you learn? Why don't you turn from your pride and arrogance? Verse 21, be careful. Do not turn to wickedness, for you have chosen this to affliction. You be careful, Job. You must not go on speaking false errors uh, against or as a way out of your affliction. You've got to humbly submit to God and his wisdom and his power to deliver you. Make sure that you find relief not through improper means. Now remember, Job, even though he's talked about death a lot of times, he would he would never speak of it in in pursuit or in the uh, practice of suicide. He never threatened to take his own life. He never said, I'm going to die uh, by my own hand. No, he said, God's going to kill me. He's going to slay me. Well, even if he does slay me, I'm going to trust in him, he would say. And of course, there's issues with that translation, the text and all that. But the idea is, Job is not going to take his own life. God is the one who has to take his own life and kill him, if that's how God is going to answer it. And Elihu says, no, don't look for death as the answer. You're out. God is bringing you through it. First Corinthians 10 uh, 13 says uh, there, you know, God is faithful. He, excuse me, there's no temptation which is overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear, but with that temptation, provide a way of escape that you may endure it. A way of escape is that ending. God will provide the end for that situation. Same idea, that phrase, um, a way of escape is the same word used in Hebrews 13, 7, talking about the the conduct, uh, considering the, it's about teachers or those who spoke the word of God to you, uh, imitate their faith, but it says, um, how does it say there? When the the way of their conduct or the, considering their conduct, that word conduct is that idea of the way of escape or the end goal of all this. God wants to establish his people in faith and obedience to his word. Again, coming back to Elihu. Job, you better choose wisely. Don't turn to wickedness. Don't turn to foolishness in these things. Make sure that you find relief properly. He finishes here. It's come a long way to it. Verses 22 to 25. God, again, powerfully teaches in, in affliction. Verse 22. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has appointed him his way? And who has said, you have worked out unrighteousness? Remember that you should exalt his work of which men have sung. All men have beheld it. Man looks from afar. He emphasizes, El who does, God is exalted. Again, there's that phrase, behold God, as we saw earlier in this uh, text, verse um, uh, 5 there. And again, in verse 26, he's going to say the same thing. Behold God. So give your attention to God. He is exalted in his power. He is the sovereign God. He is the one who is over all things in his power. He is exalted. Isaiah 2 uh, gives us this picture. The lofty look of man will be made low. The men made high will be bowed down. 
and Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. The loftiness of man will be bowed down. This is jumping down to verse 17. The loftiness of man will be bowed down, and the men who are high will be made low, and Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols will completely vanish. God himself is exalted in his power, in his power. And who is a teacher like him? Who is a teacher like him? This, this question, who is like God? Who is like Yahweh? is often used by the, by the prophets. Uh, we see it even in uh, Moses, the Song of Moses uh, in Exodus 15. Who is like you among all gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearsome in praise and working wonders? Exodus 15 and verse 11. Elsewhere in Deuteronomy, who is, who is like you? Now, actually, that's talking about Israel. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is, who is like you, a people saved by Yahweh? So it gives that uh, a special expression toward, toward the people. But a lot of times we see who is like Yahweh. In fact, two prophets are named, are, are kind of follow after this idea. Micaiah and Micah uh, have to do with who is like Yahweh. Who is like Yahweh? There's nobody like Yahweh. Elihu emphasizes specifically the teaching aspect. Who is a teacher like God? I mean, he's the master teacher. He's the teacher of the year, teacher of the, well, eternity. He's the best one around. He knows how to teach, and we should listen and humble ourselves under him. He is the ultimate teacher. He is the caring teacher. He uses discipline even to, to propel or to, to promote uh, his, his followers to, to, to choose rightly. He's not fickle. He's not capricious. He is so kind, so tenderhearted to help us. He is exalted in his power, but he comes right down and helps us right along the path. Again, as a tender shepherd leading his own people. He instructs sinners in the way. Psalm 25 verse 8 says, he teaches the humble his way. God is the one who teaches. He is the one who teaches proper judgment. Uh, we find our Lord, Jesus, is that master teacher, and he is the one who is uh, just excellent uh, beyond any comparison. Who is a teacher like him? Well, that means we should listen to him. Job, listen to him, what God is doing. Instead of this attitude, verse 13, who has appointed him his way and who has said, hey, You've worked out unrighteousness. You did it wrong. You're not doing it right. Who has given him or appointed him his way? Who has delegated authority to God and say, hey, God, why don't you take care of this over here? Let me, let me you know, we'll see how you do and maybe we'll get more authority later. And God says, okay, I'll try it. No, nothing like that. Who has appointed to him his way? Who has instructed God that it should be, that he should be in charge of these things? No. Who, who has appointed him his way? No one. No one has appointed him his way. God does what is right. God establishes the purpose of his hearts. God is able to do these things. And nobody can say, well, you did it wrong. You've worked out unrighteousness. Something wasn't right about that whole thing. No, nobody can say that. Nobody can say these, these accusations in verse 23. What should we say? Verse 25, 24 and 25. Remember, you should exalt his work of which men have sung. How do, what should we do? What's the proper response to God's teaching? God's teaching through affliction to exalt him to praise him, to lift him up, to extol him, to worship him, not to find fault with him. We should exalt his work, what he's doing, uh, his words, definitely. We exalt his words, but as it's practiced or fulfilled in our lives, we honor him. Men have sung about it. That's what we sing about. Our worship is informed worship. We sing about what God has done in time and in space, and we remember God is powerful. God is exalted in all these things. Verse 25 says, all men have beheld it, all men perceive there is a God and dutifully reject him. 
based on their rebellion, their sick, their sin, and so forth. It's not to say, well, certain men haven't beheld God's work. No, everybody has. Everybody has seen when the sun rises, that's God on display. When the sun sets, that's God. When the seasons come and go and they come again, that's God, his work on display. When life happens, when death happens, God's word is is being accomplished. His work is being established. And so all men have beheld it. Man looks from afar. We look kind of through uh, a mirror we, or through it uh, at a distance. We don't always, you know, put two and two together and get four. We kind of we get confused. We, we rebel against the truth a lot of times, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. But he says that we ought to extol, exalt God. Now, all this can, you know, put all these statements of Elihu against Job. You can think, wow, he's really ruthless and, and harsh to Job. No, but he, he is speaking the truth for Job's own soul's sake. He is speaking, if you don't mind, the gospel to Job. Repent. Trust in God. Turn away from your wickedness. Turn away from finding fault with God. Turn away from your own self-righteousness. Job, come to God. Use this time of affliction as God intends to teach you to depend upon him, to draw near to him. Now, he has finished this this first part of his last speech. He's going to turn to powerful demonstrations uh, just to, to get some visceral reaction from Job and all the people. In fact, he even says, I'm, I'm trembling and quaking. Uh, verse 37, verse, chapter 37, verse 1. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. So he says, look, I'm going to scare you. Uh, not to to frighten him, but to bring the fear of God upon him, because obviously Job needs to be put in his place. He needs to be humbled, you know, brought down uh, uh, not just a rung or two, a whole couple ladders or two. He's just way up on his high horse, and he needs to exalt God. And that's what this is all about. Exalt God, praise him, love him, listen to him, and serve him. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your truth. What a marvelous truth it is. Please help us to be humbled before you, to trust you, even when things don't go according to our perspective, our little agenda, and things are rather hard and difficult, and we're not in that broad, open place with the table full of fatness. It's really a hard life down here, but we can trust you. You are good. You are glorious. You are jealous for your own glory. You will be exalted. You will be proven right by all people. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray that that day would be very soon. But until that day comes, we pray that your people, at least, would rest in your sovereignty, your purpose, your goodness, your wisdom, your justice. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.